All right, how's everybody doing tonight? I always love George's in the front. He always says, phenomenal. That's awesome. That's such a good attitude to have. And really, that's kind of the the crux of this whole message tonight is, is about how important our attitude and our mind and our will is. And so without... Further ado, let's get into it. Um, we're in, we're in um, Romans chapter 6. Now, remember in, in the previous chapters, if you missed any of the, of the previous chapters uh, in Romans that we've been talking about, go on our website and check it out. You can podcast from there. You can do Google Play, you can do iTunes, or you can grab them straight off our website. But listen to the previous messages and, and catch up on them. Because it's important when we're reading through the Word of God, it's important that we take it in context. It's not just a, a mishmash of different little bits of wisdom and thoughts and random, random uh, ideas here and there. It's a coherent document, in this case a letter, but it's, it, it has a flow and it has a train of thought. And if you don't read it in context, um, it can easily be taken out of context, right? That's how people take scripture and they make it say something that it was never intended to really say. And we see that happen all the time, unfortunately. And that can be a danger. A lot of times, it's not people that we would call false prophets or, you know, false teachers or anything like that. It's just somebody well-meaning maybe, but they're just pulling out that scripture that supports the thing they want to say. But in context, that's not what it means. So I always want to encourage you, as we go into a week, like this week we're in chapter 6, next week we'll be in chapter 7, and then chapter 8, and I think you're, you're sensing a pattern here. If you get the chance, go ahead and read through, just in your Bible, in your version, whatever you have, read through that chapter prior to coming in this weekend, and hearing that taught on. I guarantee each chapter in Romans is probably a maybe 15, 20-minute read, Okay, at the most, you can all do that. But do that, and you'll have a better foundation in context-wise of what we're talking about. So, so let's get into it. So in chapters uh, basically 1 through 5, Paul has spent considerable time talking about righteousness and how righteousness is not through anything that you've done. Righteousness is something that God declares over you. It's not anything you can work for. It's not based on how smart you are, how good you are, how connected you are. It's just simply a declaration that God makes over you. And then he kind of starts grappling with this idea where some people are throwing at him like, well, if that's what it is, then really the worse that we behave, the more badly we behave, the better God is in comparison, right? The more bad things we do, the better God is. So really, our bad behavior glorifies God, right? That sounds like a little kid kind of logic, right? But that's the logic that they're using on him, and Paul then has to kind of refute that and go, no, that's not, that's not the point of this. But in the middle of all that, he starts to hear some rumbling coming from some of the other churches and just some critics. And anytime you teach, there's going to be some critics. And there start to be some critics that are saying, hey, Paul's going around teaching of this justification by faith, and by extension, then anything goes. You don't have to worry about the law anymore. You don't have to do all, all, the, all the religion, all these things that we've put around our relationship with God. You don't have to do those anymore because anything goes. Anybody, This is what they're starting to criticize him with. And so he's hearing these rumblings. 
he's hearing this criticism. And so what he has to do, obviously he hasn't been teaching that, but they're clearly, they're not quite hearing where he's going with this. So he stops and he backs up. Now, again, that's where we ended up the last, the end of chapter five, he's talking about righteousness uh, as a gift from God. And then he's hearing this, so he's having to open this chapter then with another one of those therefores. Now, he doesn't say therefore to open up chapter six. He says, what shall we say then? Okay, which again is a, is a mental trigger. Let's go back and see what's the setup to this rebuttal that he's about to say. So I'll just read these to you. This is Romans 6.1. And he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Okay, that's just the crux of the point that I was just telling you that he's being criticized for. But then he immediately, in the very next sentence, he answers it. Romans 6.2. He says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Church, that right there is the crux of almost everything that we teach on. It's the struggle. How shall we? Now, this is a rhetorical question. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? How does this happen? He's not saying, hey, you died to sin, so that's never going to be a problem. He's saying, how, how is it then that we do this? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? This is our daily struggle. And that daily struggle, that daily struggle against the flesh and against the things that the enemy in the world is going to throw at us, therein lies the issue. And that's what he's going to teach on, and that's what we're going to talk about here for the rest of chapter 6. So he goes into this concept of justification, and he's already talked about that, of righteousness, he's already talked about that. And then there's a new concept introduced, and that, and that concept is, is um, oh my gosh, my head just exploded. <laughs> sanctification. So we have righteousness, and we have sanctification, and we have justification, and we have all these vacations. That's what I was saying. Believe it or not, that's what I thought in my head, like, I'm going on vacation next week. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. This is what goes on in my head, just so you don't think like your pastor's all holy and, and smart. No, that's why I lost my train of thought, to be fully transparent with you. <laughs> so Paul begins to teach, okay? So again, he's, he's taught him about righteousness. He's taught him about justification. And now he's going into this idea of sanctification. So it all sounds like a lot of Christianese, right? Especially if you haven't spent a lot of time in church and you haven't really heard it taught on a lot. It's like, what, what does this all mean? Really, it's just a lot of things. And if we just throw that out and like, okay, moving on. It's so difficult for a lot of people to just grasp that concept. And then they tune out and we lose them. So just a note to you guys, when you're discussing these things with people, think about what they may or may not quite grasp. And I'll be honest with you, a lot of people that I talk to, 
those concepts kind of get blurry, right? How many of us, just in here, just a rhetorical question, have a really rock-solid, firm grasp on the difference between justification and righteousness and sanctification? Okay, it's probably... It's probably a difficult, a difficult concept. So righteousness. Let's think about this. Righteousness. What is that? Right standing. Yes. What's that, Leah? Uh, we say right in hisness. Okay. Right in hisness. Okay. That's not going to fit on a T-shirt. Okay. Righteousness. Here's here's the crux of this. Righteousness is declared over you. God declares you righteous because of what Jesus Christ did. And your faith in him, God declares you righteous. It's a one-time thing. Through faith in Jesus, he says, you, I am declaring you righteous. Price paid. Price paid. Penalty paid. Now, justification, that is the the act or the process of having been declared righteous. So essentially they're the same thing. It's just a little bit of a different tense. Having been justified. Okay, it's a, it's a thing that happens to you. Righteousness is the act of God declaring you righteous. So if that's the case, now what is sanctification? Being set apart. That is exactly what sanctification means. It, being, it means being set apart as holy. But that's not a one-time thing. Now, God, God declares you justified. He declares you righteous, and you move forward in that righteousness, and we start growing in the fruits of the Spirit, all these things that we've heard. But to be sanctified is to be set apart. Now, again, there's scripture that says that God had a plan and a purpose for you since before you were ever born. And we know that when sin entered the world through Adam, that plan was derailed. Okay, that original plan that God had for us was derailed. The process then of sanctification is being set apart for that original purpose. But more importantly, and if you look in the dictionary, what it says is being set aside and used for your intended purpose. And it's not strictly in regards to a human being. It could be anything. This building, this building right now, when we have church and we come together and we worship Jesus, this building is sanctified for the Lord. It's being used for its intended purpose. And that very same concept applies to us. <clears throat> that concept of having a purpose, having a plan that God had for you, and yet the enemy comes in and tries to steal that plan and that purpose from you every single day. And then we read the word or we pray or we hear a message at church that talks about, no, that plan and that purpose is still yours. That's still yours. It's, don't let the enemy take it away. Don't let him take it away. And so we start pulling that rope and we grab that purpose back and we're like, okay, all right, I've got my, my purpose. I can walk in this. And then something happens and you, somebody says, oh, your, your purpose is to do that. You're too old for that. Or you're going to have to go to college before you can do that or whatever the case is. And then all of a sudden that rope starts to slip through our hands and all of a sudden now, oh man, I lost it. God wants us to know 
that the process of sanctification is something that we're going to have to struggle with every single day. And this, as Paul goes into the rest of the chapters, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the battle, about the differences. So as we go into our very first scripture, Paul explains to him really kind of what this all means. So we've got Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. So a lot of times when we think about baptism, you know, we're talking about doing baptisms here next week. When we think about baptism, we think of the renewed spirit. We think of being born again. Right? We think of coming up out of the water, a new, the old is gone, the new has come, and that's what we focus on. We focus on the new. The new has come. Life is, is out in front of me. Everything is out in front of me. Everything is possible with Christ. I am born again. Don't have that baggage with me anymore. But what this means, it talks about dying with him. And then being born again, we really, really give a, a, a short shrift to dying. Because that's not as fun. It's a lot more fun to think about being born again. I, I can do anything. But the other part of that is that we have to die to our former selves. We have to take that former self and we have to crucify it. We have to bury it. We have to kill that former self. And it's a struggle. And it's a struggle that we struggle with all the time. So in order for to have new life, the old has to die. Our corrupt nature needs to be crucified along with Christ. And we tend to set that part of it aside because the old nature doesn't give up easily. We talk about crucifying the old self, dying to our old self, dying to our old ways, dying to the old man. We are new flesh, not the old flesh. But that old flesh does not give up without a fight. And sometimes it's a bloody fight. Sometimes he will fight you every single day. And then just when you think you got it, he'll pop back up and pop you in the mouth again. This is how that process of sanctification works. It is a fight and a struggle that we need to go through every single day. Every day. Sometimes several times a day. See, if we go back and look at what Jesus did for us, his rising from the tomb and leaving that empty showed, it served to show the power and the glory of God to triumph over death. So when we read scriptures like this, the talk about joining with him in his crucifixion and in his death so that we can be born again. It all sounds good in theory. But the problem is that I think a lot of us don't truly understand what this newness of life, what it really means. Because if we walk in that newness of life, if we truly give up that old man, we are able to, to crush it and defeat him and beat him down and keep him there. That's when our lives, our renewed lives, 
give glory to God. Our life can give just as much glory to God as a risen Christ because that's what it is. It's victory over death, victory over sin, victory over the power of the grave. And we have those very same victories every single time that we walk in that true newness that Jesus gave us. But again, it's an ongoing battle. And Paul kind of elaborates on this point. Romans 6, 8 to 10. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. Okay. Again, that's one of those, if we read, it, it sounds really good. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death is no longer master over him. And you say, if we believe, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we'll live with him. That's one of those that you hear in church again, and it just sounds really good to us. But it's only powerful. It only has power if you believe that it happened. If you believe that it's just kind of, hey, cool story, bro, okay, that's not going to hold any power for you. The power comes in in our believing in our hearts and having that faith that this really did happen, this death and this resurrection of Christ. So I want to share with you a couple things. We talked about our bedrock class coming up. In our bedrock class, we do talk about this, and we go in depth into how we know for sure that Jesus existed, that Jesus was crucified, and that Jesus rose again. We go very in-depth into that, but many of us who consider ourselves Christians still have this thing in our mind like, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's metaphorical. Maybe it's just like a metaphor that he kind of rose again. Or, or There's all kinds of different things. Let me share with you a couple ways that we know for sure that Jesus did was crucified and rose from the dead, okay? We have a picture, just an image, of what a typical tomb looks like. Okay, this is what, the, what a tomb looked like. This big stone was on a little ramp, and that stone weighed several tons. And then after they put the body in the tomb, they would, they would scoop out the dirt, kick the rock out of the way or whatever, and that would roll down and seal the tomb. It wasn't something that you could just go up and ninja kick it and it would fall over and you walk free, okay? It, was, it, took, it took a process to get that open again. But we read the Bible and the Bible's all full of all kinds of different accounts. What if we set aside what the Bible says? What if we just set that aside for a minute and just look at some, at some facts that we know, okay? Let's look at an outside source. Let's look at a source that actually was, had every reason to say that this didn't happen. But he was caught in a catch-22. And this is a Roman historian named Tacitus. And as a historian, he was bound by Roman law to report the facts, keep the history accurately, and by law. Don't spin it. Don't put what you think happened or what you think should happen. Report the facts. That'd be cool if we still had that. Anyway, moving on. Moving on. Tacitus, Roman historian in 64 AD, okay, so very, very shortly after all this, right in the time, he said this. Now, the, the context here is Emperor Nero had decided that when, when Rome burned, he was just going to blame it all on the Christians. He's going to, that was his 
plan just to blame it on the Christians. And so Tacitus is writing this in response to that. So he writes, Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, for whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition, okay, he's not a believer, he calls it a superstition. Most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment, I mean, we're not gonna talk about it at the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. So this is a Roman historian. He is basically documenting here. That's not his point, but he's documenting the facts that Jesus was definitely crucified and that this band of Christians then raised up and they have this superstition that he calls it and they're, they're growing. They're growing in power and influence to the point to where Nero feels like he has to blame them for Rome burning um, to try and gain some power back. But that's just one. There are many, many more that we'll talk about. There are some theories out there like the wrong tomb theory. Like when they went back and the tomb was empty, that they just had gone to the wrong tomb. Well, there were Roman guards posted outside this tomb, right? They would have known where the correct tomb was. It's not just a matter of, well, it's empty. This must be the one. They would have known for a fact that this is the one. The assumption there is that the women just were hallucinating or something when they saw him, but that's, that's not the case. There's a, there's a theory called the swoon theory, which is, which is where all the, all the beatings and all the blood loss and everything that Jesus went through, basically he just passed out from the pain. And then they buried him or put him in the tomb, sealed the tomb, and then he came to in the tomb. Came to in the tomb, and then he got out and he escaped somehow. All right, let's look at that logically. Could a man who had been beaten so badly that they thought he was dead, remember they, they stabbed him in the side with a spear, water came out, and that's how you indicate medically death, but let's, for instance, let's just assume for a moment that didn't kill him. You take a man in that kind of shape, you drag him in here, you throw him in this tomb, you seal it with a two-ton rock that has to roll up a hill, he comes to, how's he getting out? How's he getting out? Okay, so let's say, let's say a whole bunch of people come from town, a bunch of the disciples come in, and they throw a rope around that rock and some horses, donkeys, and they drag it out of there, and Jesus escapes. Okay. Jesus then very shortly appears to disciples and others. Is a man who's been beaten that bad in the process of healing, He's scarred up. He needs food. He's emaciated. All these kind of things. Is that the kind of man that is going to inspire them to call him the Messiah and the risen Christ and celebrate him as that? Or would he more logically have just been, he's another martyr. They had martyrs all the time there. He would have been called a martyr, not the risen Messiah. You have to rise in victory over this to be the Messiah. Anyway, many, many other um, theories that most of them are debunked if you look at the facts. Jesus was crucified for us, and he did rise from the dead. If you want more info, sign up, take that class. We'll talk about it more. But there's plenty of proof that it did happen. So 
If that happened, if Jesus literally triumphed over death and over the grave and rose again in victory, then when it says we are buried with him and we rise again with him, then we get to partake in that very same victory over death and over sin that Jesus had. That's the very same victory that we can share in. So given that fact, the choice then is up to you. What do you choose? Romans 6, 12 to 13. Romans 6, 12 to 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. What he's telling them there is that your mind is renewed. Your mind is renewed, but your flesh is not. Therefore, therefore, do not present your body as an instrument of unrighteousness. Because your body, your flesh, that's where unrighteousness, that's where that battle for unrighteousness is. It's in your body. Still, sin still has a foothold in your mortal body. Your mind is renewed. Your mind is renewed. You have the Holy Spirit in you to testify to you what, what is correct, what is good, what is pure, and to testify these things to you and help you understand where you should go. However, we still have a fallen fleshly body that is subject to sin and lust of the flesh. And this is what Paul is telling him. He's telling him, yeah, you're renewed. Your mind is renewed. It might be in the right place, but you still have a struggle. He's warning us, don't turn your back on this struggle. Use your body as an instrument of righteousness. Because really, sin doesn't have any power over you that you don't allow. It's literally up to us. The devil made me do it is not an excuse. The devil lies. The devil tempts. He cheats. He steals. But he can't make you do anything. Which is why Paul has to continue revisiting this and why churches ever since then continue revisiting this concept. Yes, you are a Christian. Yes, you have been declared righteous, but you need to struggle to maintain. You need to struggle to hold on to that. Hmm. You can be an instrument of righteousness, bringing glory to God in everything you do, or you can be a tool of the devil. And that's a choice that we have to make. It's a choice we have to make. Remember, sanctification means to set apart as holy and and then that Webster's definition, the state of functioning in your intended purpose. What it is, the process of sanctification is a return to that stolen purpose that God has always had for us. That purpose that the devil wants to steal from you through lies, through cheating, through whatever method he can, that purpose is something that we need to pursue and we need to grab onto. And we need to fight for it. That's what that means. So after all this, Paul puts kind of an exclamation part on the whole, uh, point on the whole thing. Romans 6, 
23. <clears throat> but now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification. And the outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Having been freed from sin and then enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. That benefit is sanctification. It's a return to your intended purpose in the kingdom of God. Those things that he had promised for you, those things that he had set aside for you, it's a return to those things. That is the process of sanctification, church, and it's what we need to continue, continue walking towards. So when you hear, when you hear a message like that, and you think about it, like how do I respond to this? I think your response is based a lot on how you feel right now. How do you feel right now? Do you feel you hear that and you go, I'm doing pretty good with that? See, if you're doing well and winning the battle against the flesh, you're probably pretty encouraged. Yeah, I'm doing good. I'm praying every day. I'm, I'm winning those, those battles that I have and I'm doing good. More often than not, I'm, I'm really doing well. This will be a very encouraging message. But, if you find yourself struggling from time to time. I do really well one day, and then the next day, it's not so well. I go up and I go down, and I'm, I'm hot and I'm cold, and I just never seem to be victorious over all those things. But if you're going up and down and you're back and forth, this message is probably convicting for you. Not condemning, it's convicting which means I do, I do have a battle to fight, and I realize it, so I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight against the lies and the schemes of the enemy. It should be convicting to you. Now, if you're in a place where you feel like you seem to lose more than you win, you're backsliding is the common term, but you just, you just seem to be losing more than you win. The flesh wins out all the time. If that's the case, it might be a discouraging message to you. Jesus did everything for me. God had a purpose for me. He declared me righteous. He declared me free, and yet I still feel that bondage. What do I have to do at this point? It could end up being a discouraging thing to you. And then there's still a whole other group of people that if you don't know Jesus at all, then you might be feeling a little bit lost. Like, ah, that all sounds great, but what if, what if I don't even know Jesus? Am I just a pawn or not included in this whole thing? You could feel totally lost over a message like that. And I'm thinking that through. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and start, uh, start heading up. But if you're, if you're in any of those places and you're feeling any of those things, I want you to know that you are not alone. There are other people probably sitting right next to you that feel that very same way. I feel that way. Give me a space of two or three days and I probably go through that entire range of emotion myself. Feeling that very same way. So you're not alone. But literally, 
you are not alone. Remember in verse 22, where Paul says, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Church, you have been set free. You have been declared righteous and set free. The choice now is ours. Now, if you know Jesus and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then this is for you. You need to make that decision right now, and you need to make that decision every single day. That I will move in sanctification. I will set myself apart as holy. I will not live in the world. I will not live in the pit that the enemy wants me to crawl in there with him. But I will set myself and I will set my family and I will set my life apart as holy unto God and I will pursue that sanctification every single day. I will walk in my purpose. This is a declaration that we all need to make if we are followers of Jesus. That is something that we should be saying to ourselves every single day. Every single day. Now, if you're here and you haven't given your life to Jesus, and I think I recognize every single face in here, but that does not mean, just because you come to church, does not mean that you have surrendered your life to Jesus. And so if you're here and you have not done that, you're in that place and you're feeling that I, I need help with this life that I'm in, but you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, you can do that now. See, this church is sanctified as a holy place. As a holy place where the Lord comes to meet you. Now, he can meet you anywhere. But this place is set aside. This place, this time, right here, right now, where Jesus has been pursuing you. And if you're here, it's not by accident. It's because he has been reaching out to you. He is relentless in his pursuit for you because he wants you to join in this righteousness. He's pursuing you right now. So all we have to do, if you're in that place where you have not surrendered yourself and given yourself to the Lord, that's all it takes to, to be a part of this, to start walking in that righteousness, to start reclaiming that purpose that the enemy tries to steal from you is simply a declaration. It's a declaration. Lord, I give my heart to you. I surrender myself to you and declare you as Lord of my life. It's that simple. And if you want to pray that prayer, you can do that right now. If you want, there's a prayer team in the back. If you want them to pray with you through that declaration, you can do that. Maybe you're in a place where you're just wavering. I thought I did that a long time ago, but man, it just doesn't feel real to me anymore. Do it again. Make that declaration, and that declaration is what helps you to stand against the schemes of the enemy. Let's reclaim the purposes of God. Amen? So, Father God, we just thank you, Lord, that, that the work that you started in us, when you declared us righteous, when you declared us righteous and set free, that was just the beginning of the work that you continue to do in us. So, Lord, we open our hearts to you, and we just ask that you continue what you started. Continue helping us and showing us the path as we walk towards that sanctification, that holiness of purpose. 
that you have always called us to. Father, show us the schemes and the lies of the enemy and the things that he is using in our own minds to sow doubt. And show us your truth. And Lord, let us grab on to that truth. Let us jealously guard that truth in our heart so that anything that tries to come against that truth of who we are to you, Lord, we'll just bounce off and we'll see it for what it is, a lie of the enemy. Father God, we love you and we thank you. We thank you and we praise you every day. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's go ahead and move into communion now. Again, if you want prayer, go in the back. We have books. If you know somebody who's in a place, maybe they have just given their heart to Christ, we have those green books in the back, uh, New, New Believer's Handbook. It's a great way to just answer some questions about things you might have. So feel free to take one of those if you know somebody uh, who could benefit from that. But let's take communion now and just seal that, that, that righteousness, that gift that has been declared over us. Seal that in our hearts. And at the same time, let's make, let's make a steadfast pledge in our hearts that we will pursue that sanctification that God has had for us. And we will walk in that purpose. So when you are ready, you can feel free to start moving around and the worship team will direct you at the end. Do not forget at 7.30, we have the puppet show over in the youth room. We'd love to have as many as possible join us over there. It's a lot of fun. Thank you, church. You say to us, seek my face. Our hearts reply, your face
Show 